VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right. And good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, August the 17th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams, he's the producer. David will be speaking with you when you call to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial, 273-5211, or elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, as you all know, we had an extraordinary week, one of the Canada Summer Games. Competition kicked off yesterday for the rest of the week, two sports. Pretty good opener to it. We got a couple of wins in volleyball. Both the men's and the women's team won their game. Softball opened up against Ontario. Lost a close one there. On the track, qualified for some of the A finals that are coming up on Friday. So a pretty good start as the week two athletes try to replicate, if possible, some of the great work done in week number one. All right, so we know we did great in the pool. And I mentioned last week it was the first medal that Michael Phelps had won at the 2008 uh, Olympics. It's today in history where he was part of the men's 4x100 medley relay, becoming the first Olympian to win eight gold medals in the same Olympic Games. Stick with a little bit of sport and activity. So the marketing manager at Marble Mountain, Dustin Parsons, says they're looking aggressively at trying to become a year-round attraction. We know what the hill means for the snowboarders and the skiers, but when they've had some good conditions but mechanical problems, Marbles found themselves in a tough spot. So whether it be to more mountain biking or frisbee golf and some of the other ideas that are being bandied about, good for Dustin and his team, because it's imperative they become year-round attraction. Obviously, when they went to the public and to see if there's anyone interested in taking on Marble Mountain without the million dollars-ish coming from the provincial government annually. Doesn't look like it was an attractive option for the business public, but the the Hill and Marble Mountain and Dustin Parsons, they're up for your ideas. If you want to chime in and give them some suggestions what they can do to make it more attractive year-round, they're into it. Okay. But many of us have to travel. And a lot of skiers from outer and snowboarders from outer province come to Marble Mountain because in Atlantic Canada, it's the best hill. But inside the world of travel, I mean, and this is kind of frustrating stuff. Travel cost is up 25.5% uh, year over year. So we all know that the airlines really got battered during the, pan- the beginning of the pandemic anyway. But it just becomes increasingly frustrated to see how the big two in particular are handling the complaints coming from the traveling public, their customers. So here it is. We're paying an extraordinary amount of money to travel. And I've brought this up before, but we have to do it again. Air Canada, WestJet are playing footloose and fancy free with the rules and the spirit of the passenger bill of rights. So some of that is absolutely brought forward by the CTA, Canada Transportation Agency. They were just far too vague in their directive given to the airlines. They say that staff shortages are generally within an airline's control and it warrants compensation. But still, flights are being cancelled, people are being rebooked. The issue is staffing shortages. They've translated that into be a safety matter. It's a safety matter that they created. They knew the travelling public were coming back in droves. They sold the tickets, they booked the flights, and yet they are unable to live up to their end of the bargain. And so consequently, we just have to suffer. The one story is from a lady who her flight got bumped a day. And of course, it cost her 400 bucks US to stay in a hotel, plus additional expenses. Go to the airline for a compensation and coverage which is up to a thousand dollars and nope they so they send her an email 
And the one thing that's missing in the email, now they go to great lengths to describe the challenges that the companies face. And we understand they face challenges. So there's a surge in travel, long lineups, baggage missing, baggage processing issues, flight delays. The one thing that was not broached in the email to this particular flyer, the reason for the cancellation and the rebooking. And no compensation offered for so many people who absolutely deserve it. So maybe the Canadian Transportation Agency, or Canada Transportation Agency, maybe you can be a little bit more clear. They had a big injection of cash from the federal government, some $22 million extra for their operations. They have the ability to hold the airlines to account to ensure that they're operating with the spirit, the intention, and the black and white of the passenger bill of rights. But they haven't done it. It's all this flimsy generalities being offered. And who's paying the price? Me and you. All right, so some updated numbers yesterday. We're all feeling the pinch, right? Regardless of what you're touching, what you're buying. Inflation is down to 7.6%. That's down from 8.1%, which was a 39-year high in the month of June. Still light years away from the Bank of Canada's stated goal of 2.2%. And lots of reasons as to why inflation is the way it is, but that's not making any of us feel any better. While some of the inflation numbers come down and home sales decline, and price of fuels are going down, albeit not fast enough in this province for sure, the price of food is up 9.9% year over year. So while the other pressure points are starting to ease somewhat, even though at a snail's pace, we're getting pummeled at the grocery store. So again, to know that millions of Canadians rely on a food bank and the generosity of others, and that the other cost of living issues, pressure points like inflation, are starting to give us a little tiny break. Going to the grocery store is unbelievable. Yesterday, Taco Tuesday. Supplies for a very fundamental taco meal, over 40 bucks. Tacos. Right? That's one of those go-to, let's have an inexpensive night at home for supper. And anyway, 9.9% year over year. The current benchmark, of course, and we'll see the Bank of Canada adjust interest rates upwards again. Quite clearly, that's their intended goal. Whether it be 50 basis points or 75 remains to be seen. The benchmark, which nobody gets to borrow at, is 2.5%. And all the while, wage growth is lagging way behind inflation. So it's one thing to have the sticker price for whatever we're talking about, a head of broccoli cost X. With wages lagging behind inflation, our purchasing power has taken a mighty big beating here in the last year and a half, two years. So there's a lot of contributing factors as to why people are feeling the pinch like we are. You want to take it on? We can do it. Okay, moving into healthcare. Now, there's long-term plans, there's medium-term plans. There has been some policies put forward to try to deal with the immediacy of the concerns, the staffing shortages, whether it be the pressure on healthcare professionals, and of course, the general public, with our wait times, inability to see family doctors. You know all these stories, right? So the province has increased the number of graduates from licensed practical nursing programs, personal care attendant programs, registered nurses programs. They put a They've dangled a carrot for family doctors to set up shop, and after three years with a full patient roster, a bonus of $100,000. We've taken over the five uh, seats at Munns Medical School that the province of New Brunswick used to fund, and now we fund it, so it means 65 seats at Munns out of 80 for locals. They're much more likely to stay, as we know. Yesterday, another announcement where they're adding five seats to the Family Medicine Residency Program. Okay. Probably a good idea. We'll see how quick some of these things work because there's going to be a review of some of these policies in the fall to see what kind of uptake was in place. And that's important because if it's not working, then we've got to go back to the drawing board. If the intention is to 
entice Canadian grads that they went to schools elsewhere to come back to finish their training, because that's the trick inside of family medicine. You still need a couple of years of mentorship and training after you are a graduate from med school. So now with these five additional seats in the residency program, hopefully it will indeed have the outcome that we're hoping for. We know that many doctors have graduated from Munns Med School, have gone a field further afield to other provinces or other countries to get their additional training to become GPs, family doctors. And sometimes, obviously, they don't come home. But now with this five additional seats, hopefully it will be part of the, the suite of programs intended to deal with the real short-term crisis. Look, even inside of Health Accord and the 10-year implementation plan and many of the recommendations just make sense, a lot of people just don't have the time to wait. And, of course, people's patience as patients is wearing thin. So hopefully this has some positive outcomes if you want to take it on we can do it. And also, sticking with Memorial University, and of course the reaction to this on social media in particular is really quite normal. Memorial has decided for the upcoming fall semester that they're bringing masks back. So, masks will be required on campus, in the classroom, and in the laboratories. So that whether it be at the Student Wellness and Counseling Center, the Health Sciences, Grenfell Campus, and of course throughout Memorial University proper. Okay. So, they are not required, but recommended and strongly recommended in some of the public spaces, but inside the classroom and the laboratories, they will be required. Uh, they'll also be recommended in offices, events, and at meetings. Masks will not be required for instructors who are lecturing or in performance or industry programs where there might be a problem with communication and interfere with educational objectives, whatever that actually means. No change in other issues, other issues, pardon me, like vaccines and what have you which has obviously been quite the conversation to have. There will be some on-site testing available. They're, of course, recommending like everyone should if you're sick, stay home. But, and hand sanitizer will be available, and plexiglass that's up will probably remain up. And then at the very end of the story in the Gazette, they talk about what is probably the key issue for all private and public buildings is attending to ventilation. Because it's not just about COVID-19 or the coronavirus. Clean, healthy air has every single bit of upside that you could possibly dream of. So to ensure that we're all on the right track, and this would even deal with very common ailments like the common cold, better ventilation where we live and work. So, but it's at the end of the story in the Gazette. And when we talk about preventative measures, generally speaking, ventilation, which probably belongs at the top of the list, is always near the bottom of the list. Unbelievably so. Now, of course, like in the classrooms, the province sole source, some of the air ventilation systems or purification systems. But anyway, masks coming back on campus, you want to take it on. We can do it. Now, this story here is disgraceful, but it's worth conversation. So many men and women who have joined the Canadian Armed Forces and done as ordered return home after their deployments or when they leave the military to face a l just litany of paper warfare to try to get the services that we told them we would give them, what we owe them. We know that veterans of the armed forces are far more likely to die by suicide than members of the general public. We know that to be true. So this one particular story is about a veteran who presented at Veterans Affairs Canada dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, a traumatic brain injury. He's been making some positive strides forward. But here's what one of the employees at Veterans Affairs Canada offered as a solution, a treatment to this person's PTSD and traumatic brain injury. 
they are from medically assisted suicide, medical assistance in dying. What? It's horrific. So here are people looking for help, not asking to die, but if we don't give them the help, they may die at their own hand or from other causes, and someone had the audacity to offer this as a solution, medical assistance in dying. The VAC has recognized it was entirely inappropriate. An apology has been offered, but that's only after the harm was done. The looming question would also be, they look, Veterans Affairs Canada doesn't deny it. They apologize. They did it, whoever that one employee does uh, is. But it was only after several complaints were lodged. And then, I guess we should be asking, how many more times has this happened? Veterans looking for help. PTSD. Well, here, sir or ma'am, is your solution for your PTSD. Let's set you up with a doctor who can help, uh, help you die. Medical assistance in dying. Really? Veterans Affairs Canada has obviously some serious issues, as does the military, but that story just kind of disgusted me this morning. I thought I'd put it out there if you want to talk about it. Let's do it. Fella yesterday, late in the show, called. We were talking about whether it be sugary drinks and the number of people and the volume of alcohol consumed and cigarettes and some of the, uh, the apo- approaches and policy and m- labeling and marketing of cigarettes. And he brought forward an interesting issue. Just how prominent are the contraband cigarettes? He also mentioned, you know, whether it be rum coming from St. Pierre and Michelin or what have you. But then Wally, who's listening to the show, sent me along a news story. It's from 2016, but it helps paint the picture. And I would imagine whatever the numbers were in 16, given the increased cost and what have you, the numbers are even worse now or higher when it comes to contraband cigarettes. At that point, there had very recently been a bust by Grand Falls, Windsor, a traffic stop, where they seized 100,000 contraband cigarettes. They went on to count a bunch of cigarette butts in a variety of locations, 21 different locations. And the end result was about 10% of all the cigarettes smoked in this province were contraband, were here illegally, costing, of course, taxpayers millions of dollars. Now, I saw one person on the Twitter thread say, well, that's what happens when government taxes you to death. And the, 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 the. Yeah, but, you know, that's excusing the crime of smuggling and, and you know, offering an excuse for the people who are buying contraband. Look, I get it. I mean, if they're available and people can save money, they're going to do it and they'll know better, but they'll do it anyway. So they counted 3,000 cigarette butts from the 21 sites, St. John's, Mount Pearl, Paradise, Conception Bay South, Carbonera, and Avondale. One of the things that jumps off the page, and these are people who are relatively well paid, 12% of the cigarette samples collected from outside the Confederation building were illegal. The highest tally was 26.4% of the butts collected on George and Adelaide streets in St. John's. Kind of stands to reason. But if it was 10% of all smokes smoked in Newfoundland and Labrador in 2016 were contraband illegally smuggled, you know the number is far greater than that. So I, th- I thought that was an interesting point that Buddy brought forward while he sent me the story. And so we, there's some of the updated information. Anyway, how we doing here this morning, Dave? We got a few calls today. A couple of quick notes before we move on. So there's lots of talk about the potential for wind projects, green hydrogen, and what have you. And there's going to be a contract struck between Canada and Germany on August 23rd when the Prime Minister meets uh, Chancellor Schultz out in Stephenville. And we know that there is no such green hydrogen project even up and running in the country at this moment in time. So I think it's a fair question to ask, why are we 
you know, what is the deal? Not why we're doing it, but what is it? And what kind of commitments do we have on what sort of timeline, given the fact that the number one proponent in the news, World Energy GH2, has been sent back to the drawing board for more details and environmental assessment. Okay. So the, I don't know a whole lot about hydrogen. Maybe you do. But where does this all fit in, especially when Germany wants green hydrogen? There are three types of recognized hydrogen products, gray, blue, and green. Most of the hydrogen products in the world come from converting natural gas to hydrogen and carbon dioxide, the latter, of course, emitted to the, into the atmosphere. That hydrogen is referred to gray, so that's converting natural gas to hydrogen. In the blue world, you capture the emissions with carbon capture and storage, which would make the hydrogen blue. In green hydrogen, you take water molecules, split them through hydrolysis, using renewable in energy, for instance, in this province, is intended to be wind and or solar, and that makes it green hydrogen. But the trick is, so says some of the people chiming in on this, is one fellow, notably, he's the Industrial Research Chair of the Natural Sciences and Engin Engineering Research Council, uh, Amit Kumar. He says green hydrogen comes at a much higher price to produce and a much higher price to distribute. He says, apparently, if you, have to, if you produce the green hydrogen, you have to cool it to liquefy it, to put it in a very special adapted container ship, to uh, send it wherever it's going, of course, with additional costs at every turn. So you wonder where hydrogen fits in to this country's plans to create some job opportunities. I don't know what kind of wealth it will create anywhere in the country. And of course, this province is keen to get in on the action. And if the Germans want it, the Germans will have to pay for it. As long as there's no big tax dollar, whether it be federally or provincially, involved, and some leasing of crown land so it reverts back to us if and when wor world energy can't find a market for its product. But uh, anyway, just the, the little issues surrounding the hydrogen business. So I had a few more I wanted to talk about. Look, the province is going to move forward with pay equity legislation in the fall, we're told. There has been a lift of the province-wide fire ban, but it's important to check with your municipality because it might not be the same in Mount Pearl as it might be in CBS, so check with your municipality. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. little tune on the go. This one going out to Sheldon. In 1974, squarely in the top ten was ABBA, Waterloo. Don't go away. Ah, welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Great, sir. Thank you. How are you? Oh, not bad. By Patty, uh, I'm a long-term uh, resident of Patty Harbor, Maddox Cove, and we, uh, I, I have, a, I guess, a, a cellular service down this way is provided by Bill, but also other networks are piggyback down to that there. And uh, we have had uh, the past month, but in the past two weeks alone, critical issues with our cell service down in this area. So, and, and the reason why I'm using the word critical is that uh, calls are being dropped uh, frequently uh, by many users down here. And the the issue uh, is, is, you know, it hasn't been addressed yet. Uh, there's been Several residents call the uh, the phone company's uh, mobility and that they're complaining about the issues with the service. Uh, my concern with it, I guess primarily, by we have had pristine service down here for many, many, many years, all right? Uh, so good that the actual uh, cell phones, a lot of the younger people now, don't have landlines anymore. They just use their cell phones as their primary phones. 
including my son. Uh, the issue uh, with calls dropping, uh, calls not getting through, uh, like I said, uh, I'm saying it's critical because my fear is that there's going to be an emergency. There's going to be a situation where somebody's going to need to, to get help, and we're not going to. The people who only have cell phones are not going to be able to get through, or if they do get through, they're going to have their call dropped. My wife, myself, and several people here in the community have been using their cell phones, and in within the span of a couple of minutes, it varies here and there. The call drops, it's gone, or there's calls not reaching us. Like like I said, now I know that cell phones, I mean, uh, primarily nowadays, everybody uses them. And it's not an issue with cell phones, which uh, various people uh, have said that they said check your sim card do this do that the issue is the actual signal service coming from the equipment mm-hmm. uh down in the valley i've 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 been on the phone with someone i'm i'm calling from my landline right now actually but i've been on the phone and uh, on a cell phone the call drop i look at my phone i see the bar count and the signal drop to zero and then come back up again so it's an intermittent issue that comes and goes but my fear, like I said, and this is why I'm saying it's critical, is that something's going to happen and somebody's not going to be able to use their phone and we're going to have a problem that I don't want to see happen. And like I said, mm-hmm. my son, my daughter-in-law, we got grandkids. There's people that have elderly people here. There's people that are, try- are trying to have appointments for medical reasons that, that the, the doctor's office can't get a hold of them. Like I said... I'm calling the critical issue, right? It always is. Look, you know, people talk about the lack of service as being inefficient. And, of course, you're paying for service that you don't get unless you're in a lucky hotspot, whether it be up and down the Bureau Peninsula, Maddox Cove, or wherever the case may be. Yes. But realistically, or Labrador, I mean, of course, you have to rent a loan of a satellite phone for some trek in Labrador. But it is basically... It boils down to it's a massive safety concern for me. Of course, it's frustrating when your call drops. It's irritating when you pay for a service that you don't get. But when we have the issue of what happens in worst-case scenario, that's generally where these conversations begin. I think the starting point is what happens in worst-case scenario. I know the province is sort of up against it when you're talking with the big three telecom companies and whether or not they've got a business model that constitutes putting more infrastructure in, towers and otherwise. But it really is a beginning point to talk about what happens if I cannot get to a first responder because I do not have a signal on the phone that I pay for. So I get where you're coming from. Yeah, well, like I said, I mean, like, like you know, Petty Harbor is a tourist area, so like we have buses come in. All of a sudden, uh, they have congestion issues, and, and that's understandable. I mean, and that varies. Like I said, I mean, you know, like you can only have so many channels to use on it and stuff like that. Like I said, uh, and, and that's one thing. But I mean, like I said, I've I've been a long-term resident down here. I've been a long-term mobility customer and all that. And like I said, and we have had pristine service. I cannot say. That that it hasn't been better, but the past few weeks have been terrible for for many, many of the residents down this way, including myself. And like I said, I want to have somebody from mobility or whoever is going to have a look at it, to look at it, to publicly announce, hey, we're checking this out, we're going to see what the problem is, and then, hey, guys, it's been repaired, 
everything should be okay. Any problems, give us a call, right? But right now we're in, in seems like the twilight zone there, the fact that we, ha- we have trouble tickets open up. We've had countless residents call and say, we've opened up a trouble ticket on this and we're going to escalate this. I haven't heard anything from anybody about anything at all. I want it to be publicly announced. We're addressing this. We are going to fix this. And, hey, it's been fixed, right? Like I said, we had, like I said, Patty, we've had pristine service down this way. But the past couple of weeks to a month, it is just not only frustrating but scary for me because of the fact that I'm afraid that something's going to happen to one of my right. grandkids and my son can't get a hold of anybody. The, right. When the silence is deafening, it becomes more frustrating than it need yeah. be. If you had an update, like I say this all the time, even if it's not the answer you want, an answer yeah. is more helpful than just Look, radio silence. There, last last a, word to you, David. Yeah, there's there's a, uh, an issue with, with uh, uh, manufacturing trips at, uh, chips in the world and stuff like that, and I can understand all that. And if there's an issue with parts that are not available or something, just let us know that, like I said. Sure. I mean, you know, uh, uh, like, like I said, maybe we need to be told, okay, look, you know what, there's going to be two months before this is correctly fixed. Go get a landline just to make sure, right? Like I said, I mean, Understood. I just wanted answers. That's all, right? Appreciate the time and the issue all this right. morning, David. Yeah. Thank you. Pre- appreciate your time, too, Patty. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, okay, let's go ahead and take a break. So I don't know how much conversations had been had about this issue, but there is a redistribution of the federal electoral districts this year. There's 10 independent electoral boundaries commissions, one in each province, of course, and in this province is chaired by Justice Alphonsus, Alphonsus Fowler. He joins us right after the break. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Joining us on line number six is the chair of the Boundaries Commission in Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Justice Alphonsus Fowler. Justice Fowler, you're on the air. Well, good morning to you, Patty. Welcome to the show, sir. Uh, It's my pleasure, and uh, it's good to uh, have a chance to discuss this whole issue. Help us understand what triggers this redistribution plan, because, you know, maybe it's American politics seeping into our psyche. We hear redrawing the boundaries as gerrymandering. It's a political exercise versus an exercise built in Stats Canada numbers or what have you. So what triggers a redistribution? Well, in Canada, after every uh, 10-year census, uh, the law requires uh, a re-examination of the boundaries of all of the federal uh, ridings. And uh, the census uh, numbers uh, uh, arising from the 2021 census were available to us in uh, early February of this year. Uh, And that's very detailed information. It it gives us numbers right down to communities and even neighborhoods. Uh, So with that, uh, we're uh, charged with um, uh, examining Uh, the population of each of the uh, federal ridings in the province and determining whether uh, we would recommend uh, any adjustments to the boundaries. Uh, And and the the legislation basically requires us to uh, uh, have uh, the ridings as similar as possible in population, uh, but we also consider, you know, historical patterns and uh, geography and and communities of interest and things like that. But uh, as you point out, the the difference uh, between our country and and the country to the south in terms of setting boundaries is that our commissions are totally independent of politics. Uh, As a judge on the Supreme Court, I chair it, and uh, 
uh, I hope that that uh, lends uh, some uh, credibility to uh, the notion that we are independent. Uh, but there's, while the, uh, the people involved in the political process can certainly make representation, and we welcome that, the final decision, uh, Patty, is uh, ours. And uh, uh, ultimately, we'll make a recommendation probably sometime early in 2020. Not a recommendation. We'll do a report uh, early 2023, which will set the new boundaries. But we can only do that after we've consulted with the public and the MPs and, and uh, anybody who has an interest uh, in this. So that's what we're doing now. And, and that's what I was uh, getting at, as opposed to implying that this is a political exercise versus the independence that it does have, which is critically important for the voter, and I would imagine for the government as well. I know there's probably not a set of parameters that need to be met for redistribution or redrawing the lines for one riding or another, but how significant do changes have to be, whether it be in population, density, and or numbers or interest or historical data what needs to be triggered for a, a district to be redrawn well we, we look at the changes in population and if it's significant uh, uh, we'll look at uh, whether um, uh, a change needs to be made and but remember we have to keep in mind uh, municipalities we don't want to divide municipalities mm -hmm. we have to keep in mind transportation routes and things like that so uh, we're not um, required to do absolute equality amongst the various uh, ridings, but we are required to get as close as we can to um, um, more or less parity amongst uh, uh, the various ridings, uh, taking those other things into account. Can this exercise result in adding to the, I think, 336 seats in Parliament or reducing the number? No, the, the number of seats in Parliament is set by a separate uh, formula. It's based in the Constitution. It's a representation formula. And, you know, our province has had seven seats since uh, Confederation, and that uh, will, has not changed. Um, if we tripled our population at some point, it could change. But uh, as it stands now, uh, the... Uh, uh, the number of seats for each province was uh, declared, I guess, uh, back in October last year. And uh, we have seven, and that's what we're working with. So we can't change that. What we can change is within the province, we can change the uh, boundaries. I was just wondering, because I think we see this trend across the country, where the urban centers are growing, the rural, the rural population is dwindling, so consequently rejigging a seat based on population might be resulting in more or fewer seats in one province or another. So you say politicians can make representation, political parties can make representation. How about individuals? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the whole purpose of the series of meetings we're having is to uh, reach out to uh, members of the public. Uh, and, and, of course, politicians are included in that. And, and to be, um, uh, be quite uh, uh, frank about it, I mean, p uh, politicians are the people who work these ridings. And uh, so, uh, quite often they will have very practical uh, suggestions uh, for boundaries. And, and we're bound to consider those. We don't have to follow them, but we're bound to consider them. But uh, we haven't heard from any uh, politicians uh, yet. Uh, we met in Marystown yesterday, or on Monday, and Clarenville yesterday. Uh, but we're, uh, the members from the general public who have come in 
have given us some very interesting uh, practical uh, issues that uh, we have to consider, we're going to have to consider when we uh, look uh, at uh, the proposal that we prepared. And, and these are practical things like uh, uh, one community may be cut off completely from the rest of the riding uh, uh, because the transportation route goes through another riding, that kind of thing. Uh, and there, there may be other issues as well. But uh, what we've heard to date is very practical, and uh, uh, I think uh, the commission is going to have uh, some uh, work to consider all these things while keeping in mind the broader issues of population and, and so on. Is the intention to have the new map drawn by the next general election, or is there a deadline, or do we just play it out until we come up with consensus? Uh, well, uh, there's not a consensus required. Uh, I just mean inside your commission members. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll issue our report, uh, our final report, uh, uh, over the next uh, few months. Um, it, it still takes some time to go through uh, the Ottawa process. I believe the uh, Ottawa process, if everything rolls out according to uh, plan, uh, should result in new boundaries in 2024. Uh, you know, in, in theory, the next election is scheduled for 2025, so I would think that it would take... Uh, uh, it would take effect uh, by that. But, I mean, uh, in a minority government situation, one could have an earlier uh, election, which would be run on, uh, likely under the old boundaries. Unless the supply agreement holds firm, and, of course, that's got nothing to do with this conversation. Uh, I know the politics of the country's north is a little bit different than the provinces versus the territories. What is there a different focus? I know that has nothing to do with this province, but is there a different focus in the north with how you approach the redistribution? Well, in the far north, uh, the three territories, uh, they only have one member each, so there's no uh, boundary redistribution to be done. There's no commission for the north because uh, the boundaries of the riding are the boundaries of the territory. Uh, I do believe uh, uh, the uh, principles relating to the north do relate to uh, this province, uh, in particular regarding Labrador. Uh, Labrador is... Um, a distinct uh, area. It's uh, uh, geographically separate from the rest of the province. Uh, it's the only northern part of a province that is geographically separate. Mm -hmm. So uh, I believe we've had to give special consideration to Labrador based on those uh, principles. But for all the other writings on the island, uh, we're uh, following a similar process to what's done in uh, in the other provinces, and that's to find the boundaries or set up set boundaries that would um, uh, give a more or less uh, relative equality amongst the ridings. For individuals who would like to make a presentation to you and your fellow commission members, what do they do? Where do they go? Well, um, I'd uh, suggest. Uh, there's a lot of information on our website, and the website can be accessed. It's a it's a complicated um, uh, it's a complicated URL, but uh, you can find it by googling uh, redistribution NL, and uh, that'll take you to our uh, commission uh, webpage. And there's a number of different options there. Uh, there's a contact information there with an email and so on. What we would like. Uh, is uh, 
if uh, anyone is interested in uh, participating in the uh, in any of the meetings we're having over the few next uh, while, uh, if they would contact us and let us know that you're coming so that we can be uh, uh, ready to receive uh, your comments. Uh, the other thing, if you, uh, I mean, we're uh, meeting in Gander later today and in Grand Falls, Windsor tomorrow. If someone wants to appear, we have a phone number that I, I can give you right now. Um, sure. If you, if you can take it, it's 709-746-7500. And that will reach our team uh, on the road, uh, and uh, we can be ready uh, for your appearance uh, if you wish to appear at uh, at any of the upcoming meetings. Now, I did say Gander and Grand Falls, Windsor uh, this week. Next week, we'll be in Stephenville, uh, Cornerbrook, and Happy Valley Goose Bay. And uh, then in um, uh, the second week of September, we'll have a series of meetings in the uh, uh, Avalon area, uh, northeast Avalon. Uh, so um, uh, what I would uh, – we, we'd really hope and we'd really like uh, for as much uh, um, constructive suggestions to us as possible. And uh, I believe that there's a lot of people out there who uh, have uh, some good ideas about uh, how this may uh, be done. It's an important process to uh, – uh, to our democratic institutions. Uh, uh, if we didn't do this over time, uh, there could be uh, significant imbalances in uh, representation in the country, and and that can lead to other kinds of problems that I, I don't think I have to get into today. But this is what we're charged with now, is uh, uh, finding uh, some equitable way to uh, uh, rearrange the boundaries uh, arising from the population shifts in the province. And I have the number on hand, if anybody is listening, was unable to jot it down, that's 746-7502. I also have the website address handy at, right at my clicker so if someone wants me to forward it along to them I'm happy to do it and you know it's a tangly IRL when it starts with redecoupage <laughs> that's right uh, we, we've had our own troubles with it Patty. no question uh, Justice Fowler appreciate your time and your work on this issue thank you sir it's my pleasure, Patty. All the best to you. Same to you. Bye-bye. As Justice Alfonso Fowler, he's the Board Commission Chair for the redistribution of federal seats and the evaluation of. So you can indeed be part of the conversation. And I can share the, uh, the whether it be contact information, phone, email, and or the webpage if you send me a note. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about government tenders. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. John, you're on the air. Hey, let me pull off the road here now. Okay. Uh, and just. John, are you there? Yes, I'm here now. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm glad to hear that somebody is, besides me, is uh, complaining about uh, cell phone service. Because yesterday I tried to phone you, and no matter which way I moved, and no matter how much I moved, Dave said, you're cutting out, you're cutting out. Anyway. It's frustrating. Yeah, it is. And I'm after phone Virgin, I'm after phone TELUS, I'm after phone Bill. And Bill keeps saying, oh, we're improving, we're improving, improving. And this has been about two years now, because you've heard me complain about it before. But that's not why I called this morning. This morning, uh, a while ago, you were going to look up and see who signed this ESS deal with Eastern Health. 
I don't know if you ever got any answer. Couldn't get our hands on it. <laughs> yeah, I guess that uh, you were probably told if we tell you, we got to shoot you. Uh, no, but I guess they might as well have, yeah? Yeah. So, in other words, you know, so much for the open transparency. Well, look, I'm never too surprised when it's dodgy or tricky to get your hands on a contract. You know, it's one of those places where they do indeed have some available wiggle room about proprietary issues and confidentiality. And But, I mean, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be able to see who signed it because that's got nothing to do with anything, right? That's just got a, something to do with someone who's on the payroll, whether it be a minister, a deputy minister, some other senior bureaucrat. If we know who's involved, then we know who to ask. So I don't expect to get into the ins and outs of every single clause and every single contract because like even in my business I don't want everyone no one has the right to see every single clause and every single contract we've ever been involved with but you know the simple question you asked is a simple answer that should have been forthcoming yeah it should have been you know and it all points out to one thing how much are you going to contribute to my campaign uh, maybe <laughs> well that's what my thinking is and that's what a lot of people think well, and that's the problem here with why government is so hesitant to deal with things like campaign financing. Because what you just said is what I would suggest the majority think, is if you had paid $500 for an evening with the premier, you're getting a favor. If you donate to the campaign, you're getting a contract. People think it. It might not be right and that might not be real, but perception is reality when we talk about politics. So unless they do themselves and the process a favor and change it up. I mean, even the federal government does it better than we do here provincially here. It's just the wild, wild west. Too many people can spend too much money, regardless if you live in the province or not. We've got to change because what you just said is what the public thinks, and that's bad for everybody. It's bad for me, bad for you, bad for every single politician. Well, not only that, uh, like I heard one time before, uh, an individual is only allowed, or a company is only allowed to donate so much money to a campaign. But this company had their employees donate. Yeah, it happens all the time. And, Patty, this is this is really, uh, I don't know what you call this. Uh, it's antiquated. It's problem. It's a problem. It's a problematic process. It has to change. They won't change because it works for them. It's the same thing as trying to do away with something like first past the post, 50 plus one. It works for the incumbents, and so that's why we don't see a change. You know, the liberals feel, yeah. figured it out uh, federally when they promised that'll be the last election decided by uh, first past the post. And of course, when the math was done, hey, that works for us. We're not going to do that now. And they came up with all sorts of nonsense about the website, and they didn't have consensus, and up and down the line. <laughs> you know, there's ways to make these positive changes and look even inside campaign finance the incumbents generally have a leg up unless they totally shat the bed so they'll have an advantage and the, you know they would have been able to bring in more money during their governance but this change is just long overdue here there's a way to change it there's just too much money in politics anyway. Like, I don't care if you have enough money to get the biggest, brightest uh, bus or coach for your campaign. I don't care if you're able to afford uh, glossy ads on television or glossy mail-outs in my mailbox. None of that matters to me. You know, if you do a good job and you can wear out a couple of pairs of shoes to try to meet the voters where they are, 
that's what works, it's what always works, what we pretend and politicians need. All of these big, bright, shiny trinkets and toys to pretend that's an actual, an actual part of campaigning when, you know, how much attention do people pay to some of that stuff? How many of these glassy mail-out flyers are used for filters? How many of these television commercials just get overlooked and they flip the channel? You know, I know radio works and they should always invest in advertising on radio, but the rest of it, we can make the positive changes for sure. John, last word to you before I run out of time. Yeah, we should get rid of this, all of this pork barreling. We talk about down the States, the pork barreling. We've got the biggest type of pork barreling here in Newfoundland and Labrador. It's hard to say no. <laughs> it's hard to argue with that particular issue. But that, again, doesn't matter if it's real. All that matters is, is that's what people think. And they need to deal with that because the perception drives political conversation, political discourse, and all the rest of it. Uh, John, I'm off to the news. I'm glad you made time for the show and the connection was good enough for a chat today. Well, I hope somebody in Bill is listening. Mm-hmm. Because it's either a bunch of lies or okay. they're equipping this garbage. Appreciate the call, John. Okay, thanks, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right, how we doing out there? Dave, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's do it. Line number one. Good morning, Angela. You're on the air. Good morning. Um... Patty, last Thursday, the Sacred Heart Church that I go to every Saturday evening was placed up for sale at $250,000. Where's Sacred Heart? Placentia. Okay. And then yesterday, my childhood church, St. Teresa's Church in Ship Harbor, that, that was put up for sale was made public. And that is going for $100,000. Yeah, there's some 110 different properties in the first two rounds of selling off of the RC assets. It's been a big issue for a lot of folks, no doubt. Besides that, Fox Harbor is up. Dumbville and Freshwater is up for sale. I know they need the money, Patty, for what happened to those children at Melcashel. But the court isn't looking at people who goes to church. Both Pesantia and Ship Harbor people, including myself, is very, very angry at this. I have three questions about these sales. Number one, there's graves underneath Sacred Heart Church in Pesantia. If you cannot sell a cemetery, why should you be able to sell a church where with graves underneath it? I think that's going to be a fairly common concern, and justifiably so, Angela. How many of the churches, before they established the cemeteries in behind the rectories or in behind the hall or in behind the church, the bodies were buried very close by the church itself? Some were marked, some were not. So are they going to go to the extent to do some radar work to make sure there are no bodies there before there's any development? I doubt it, but it's it's hard to pretend that a cemetery that's fenced in isn't the exact same thing as people's family members who are buried very close by the church or maybe no headstone to indicate they're there. So that's a fair question. I don't know what they're going to do about it. And number two, in Ship Harbor, the only way to go to the cemetery 
where my parents, brother, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and many cousins are in the cemetery, you have to go on the church grounds with the only the easy way um, church grounds to go to the cemetery. Well, it's easy for for you or anyone else to say, well, that's going to be a right away. What happens when that church is sold? And the owner of that ground then says, sorry, you're not going on my ground to visit your parents or loved ones. They're all really fair questions, and that's where I think there gets a lot of tricky, very specific issues, whether it be for one church, one parish hall, right away, or whatever the case may be. Cemeteries included, well, I mean, unmarked cemeteries and bodies that are maybe not identified close by churches. I don't know where they're going to go with all these very specific questions, but they're good ones, Angela. I wish I had some answers for you. And the third one, if all the five churches in Sanche area is sold, where did Roman Catholics go for Mass? Because there, there is no more churches placed in Placentia. Mm-hmm. And I'm a strong Roman Catholic, Patty, and this, I don't know how St. John's did it. I really don't. Because the other night when Sacred Heart Church in St. John went up, I barely could sleep. Last night, when my child, yesterday when my childhood church went up, last night, I barely could sleep. Just thinking about everything that was was there. My mother and father went to church like they didn't give a care. And I remember when Mocashaw happened, my mother looked at the TV. She said, my God, is that some bad that they're lying about this? But we know today they weren't. And it wasn't us that did it, Patty. It was the Christian brothers. Yeah, and so some of those. We say, why are we suffering? I, I, I suppose because neither entity, whether it be the Episcopal Corporation or the Christian Brothers, they don't have any money to pay the compensation that was ordered by the Supreme Court. So I don't know, and this went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. You know, when the Vatican is sitting on their billions of dollars and yet parishioners are the ones that are losing their church and their parish halls and access to the properties, of course it feels like the wrong people are paying the price here. And on top of the, the folks who victimized those children at Mount Cashel, a couple of them were convicted and they went on to do the exact same thing out in BC it's just exhausting to watch these stories are you kidding me I'm not kidding you no that was a story in the news a couple of weeks ago oh my god yeah terrible and one of the one of the brothers I knew I knew who he was just shocking Anyway, I'm not sure what else to say about that. And then you add to it, you know, that the court has also ruled that some of the schools that are sitting on Roman Catholic uh, Episcopal Corporation property, they're eligible to be sold. So what's the government going to have to buy all the schools? So it's just, it's an endless story that all begins with the atrocities and the evil that was, you know, apparent at Mount Cashel Orphanage. Just, just awful stuff. Uh, Angela, would you like to say anything else this morning? No, all I just got to say to St. John's is my heck goes out to you because 
I really, really don't know how you did it. Oh, there was a lot of very frustrated, sleepless nights for people in this neck of the woods, too. I mean, there was a lot of stories about the folks at St. Bonaventure's College and the Basilica and the rink, and they had to join forces and outbid a, uh, a potential, uh, potential developer. I know one thing for sure. If my father was still with us, he would be up in arms just like you. He was a very pious man and went to church all the time. You know, when we were kids, it was Pius X, but he went to Mary Queen of Peace a lot, and he would be absolutely beside himself with this stuff like i was on facebook yesterday and i seen ship harbor they are beyond mad <laughs> why should you buy a church back that you already own i understand and they didn't have same as placentia they didn't have nothing to do with what happened i understand but still we're suffering Yes, the people who built the churches. I mean, some of these things, like the outside of the Avalon Peninsula, or pardon me, outside of the metro region, how many of these churches and parish halls were built over 100 years ago when there was no such thing as the RC Episcopal Corporation? But all of a sudden, they fall in, in under the guise or the auspices of that authority, and now they're part of this law, this uh, legal settlement. And like you said, and like I agree, the victims need the compensation, not only because of the court ruling, because it's right. But the money coming from the wrong places is making it a very difficult issue for a lot of folks, just like you, Angela. I appreciate the time. I can hear the passion in your voice, and it was nice speaking with you this morning. No problem. Okay, take good care. Thanks. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going now. Line number three. Thomas, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. I'm not allowed to say my full name. Uh, you can if you want. Pardon me? You can say your full name if you want. Okay, my name is Thomas Royal, and I'm calling on your radio station uh, hoping your listeners uh, can help me with this matter I got a matter with uh, a problem with the landlord Tennessee Act uh, I've been evicted immediately from the house that I was living into about an hour outside of St. John's I never really had a chance to present my case with my landlord uh, I have in front of me I had a meeting uh, three or eight phone conference with the Landlord Tennessee Act and my landlord. I never had time to present my paperwork to them. And this is another matter that I'm hoping to get into in the future on your program. Uh, the letters that were sent to the Landlord Tenant Act from my landlord is falsely signed with my name on it. It is definitely not my name. It's definitely not my signature. It was my name, but definitely not my signature. Patty, I want to slow down, try to slow down a little bit here. My anxiety level is pretty high. Okay, so what was the reason being offered as to why you were evicted? Because the landlord is saying I owe him over $11,000. Now, Patty, there's no landlord that I lived in all across Canada, right as far as the Yukon, that let a tenant run up their, their bill for over $11,000. Patty, just right there alone is a false statement. Uh, what he's claiming is a light bill, an oil bill that he had delivered to my house, which is completely false. The light bill, no matter where I live and where I go, the light bill follows me for if I ever get lights hooked up back again, I have to pay that bill. That was his choice to pay for them light bills and not me. The oil bills that he's claiming for is absolutely false, and I have proof of that, Petty. I had 
the FAC team in my house during the winter. They have nothing to do with this, but they were in my house when the three of us were sat down at a table with our breath talking back and forth to each other that the house was that cold, and I put complaints in about that, which was never anything done. So, Paddy, all I'm asking is for the proper justice to be done here, and hopefully that your listeners out there that's having the same problem or other problems similar to this to uh, contact me in any way they can. I'm hoping to leave my number in your office, Paddy, so they can call. And I so... Like I said, Patty, I'm just trying hard to get through this here. No problem. We have your number. Dave Williams has it on hand. If anybody wants to connect with you, we'll be happy to share your number if that's okay by you. Yes, definitely. And, you know, Patty, all I'm trying to do is make a living here. I'm being, right now, uh, I'm having trouble with my social assistance because of it, and I'm having trouble getting my business up and running uh, through the social assistance programs. It's affecting me mentally, physically, and now financially. And I will hope that your listeners out there can help me with this matter and support me in any way they can. I wish you good luck, Thomas. Stay in touch. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, boy. Uh, Let's take a break. When we go back, Mark is in the queue. He wants to reply reply to Angela, what she had to say about the sale of the churches, whether it be the one she attends now in Placentia or her her childhood church out in Fox Harbor. Mark's up after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line one again. Mark, you're on the air. Good morning, Pat. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Uh, Pat, I just want to start off by saying I am not a, uh, a believer in the Roman Catholic Church, and I haven't been since the uh, the uh, issues that happened at Mount Cashel that sort of turned me away from such for good. So I just wanted to, to, to say a couple of things. I heard that lady call in, and uh, she was very upset about the churches being sold off. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone has their point of view, and they're all uh, allowed to have their, their point of view. Uh, but uh, I, I do have to say, I would also, lady, I mean, uh, where where is her church uh, when when they need her most? Uh, the Vatican is uh, probably one of the richest identities in, in in the world over in Rome. They have billions upon billions of dollars. If they didn't want this to happen, they could fund those churches. Absolutely. I think people have repeatedly made that point. It must be very convenient for the Vatican to be able to turn a blind eye, not only to the uh, the behavior of some of their priests, but of course then when compensation comes uh, to be part of the equation, they're nowhere to be found. Uh, I mean, just look at the story just came out of Quebec yesterday. Oh my God. I mean, it's just horrendous. But I think you make the key point is the people who did nothing wrong are the people left holding the bag. And everyone agrees and understands the compensation has got to be paid because it's morally the right thing to do and it's a Supreme Court ruling. But the folks who put their monies into the collection basket week in and week out, kept the churches alive, you know, paid for renovations, paid for upgrades, were loyal parishioners. They're being left in the lurch and they did nothing wrong. And there's something I think unfair about that. Absolutely, and you, you briefly mentioned about a priest who was in the news a couple of weeks back, and I do know that gentleman very well from high school. And, um, yep, I mean, he went off out west and uh, to their retirement, I guess it's a retirement village, and everyone's a repeat of vendor over on the West Coast, it seems. Yeah, yeah. That's well, the allegation, anyway. The, the thing about it is, all, all these uh, seniors, uh, I do, I guess, earlier, kind of, she, she sounded to me like she was a senior citizen, God bless her, but the seniors, to me, uh, when I look from the outside now looking in, are just 
totally brainwashed to the belief of of the Roman Catholic Church and a God. So, I mean, where is God to help them now? When they need him most, where is he? Yeah, fair enough. But I, I also find that to be a bit unfair because there's a variety of reasons why people turn to the church. It might be just for some spiritual comfort. It might be because that's how they grew up. But that's what they're used to. They make no bones about the fact that there's a lot of bad things associated with that particular faith in those particular churches. But I don't begrudge someone if they find some solace in going to church. You know, I grew up in a Roman Catholic family. Went to Christian boys, Catholic boys school. Never saw a girl in my classroom until I went to Memorial University. My father was a very religious man. He didn't force it on anyone or make it part of his public persona or public conversations or social circle conversations, but he was. And I, ne- why I would never be able to begrudge him, so consequently, I don't begrudge anybody else. Yes, so absolutely. But I'll just close with saying this. You have to ask yourself a question now. Is the church a religion now, or is it a business? It's a bit of both, I guess. If we're standing I'm back, seeing, I'm seeing it more as a business now because if it was a true religion, they would be doing something Canada-wide to keep these churches open. If that's that they're in the business of doing, teaching religion, preaching religion. Keep your churches open. That's where the plate goes around keeps the money coming in. Oh, sure. But, I mean, think about it. The Congress of Bishops, I think that's the, uh, the proper name for the group, they pledged, going to try to recall the number, $25 million in reparations and compensation. They haven't come up with a fraction of it, and this is years later. So, like everything else, you know, the, where the rubber hits the road and action's not words. So, look, the Vatican really should, you know, it's hard to even know how to, uh, summarize this. They should have been much more attentive to the health and the safety of their congregants as opposed to turning blind eyes, shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic, moving one evil priest to another parish to the unbeknownst uh, next set of victims. And when compensation is due, compensation should be paid. They're one of the largest real estate holders in the world. If people have ever been to some of the world's major cities, regardless of what we're talking about, New York, London, Barcelona, Berlin, where some of the prime real estate is owned by the Catholic Church with the massive cathedrals. If those, some, if, even if some of those were sold, like just in New York City, if you sold off all the uh, Roman Catholic products or properties in that city alone, you'd be able to pay an awful lot of people the compensation they're due. So you'd be able to pay them what they're due because they're still not getting it. Yeah, no, I, they, I understand they your do point. do a lot more. I understand. All right, well, that's all I'd say, Pat. Appreciate you me out. I appreciate the time. Have a good day. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Let's go to line number two. Don, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Um, I have a bit of a Good Samaritan story. Terrific. Uh, we uh, were downtown shopping in the pedestrian mall, which we loved yesterday, and we had a number of things that we picked up and bought, and then we. Uh, walked up to Duckworth Street and uh, sat on a bench and uh, called a cab. And when, you know, the cab took a bit to come, and then when it came, we were standing up and we forgot the bag on the bench. So about an hour later, we raced downtown to see if we could get it, and it wasn't there. So um, we didn't really know what to do. We asked at the tattoo shop and down at the Duke, and no, nobody had dropped it off. And then when we got back to the hotel, we uh, thought, well, maybe the down-home, because it was a big down-home bag we had everything in. So this morning we went down-home, and sure enough, the guy had brought the bag into them. But um, he didn't leave the bag with them. And uh, the girl that is uh, talked to him 
uh, is off today. So we don't really know how to get in touch with this guy. And uh, the store has our information, um, but we thought we'd put it out on the air to see if maybe the guy would hear, and he could either contact you. I could leave some some numbers when we get off the air here, and uh, or he could contact the Down Home store because they have our information. And you'd like to connect with him for what purpose? So we can get our bag back. Simple as that. I, oh, I thought he left the bag. No, he Oh, he came in with the bag and went down again. Oh. Yes, so he was a good Samaritan, right? But he he was trying, but he, if he would have left the bag, then we'd have it. And it's kind of uh, nice that he, he, you know, didn't just take it. He was trying. So anyways, uh, yeah, if we could uh, leave our numbers with your producer and maybe he hears this and he can get a hold of you guys or down home. Yeah, he's a good-ish Samaritan. <laughs> at this point okay Don what I'll do is I'll put you on hold now Dave just left the booth so Greg is sitting in for David for a couple of minutes if you want to leave some numbers with Greg you can do exactly that and for that fellow you had the right intentions you were almost there almost yes. so if you want to follow through with the the last step in this process is to give Don a call and reconnect her with the bag that would be very helpful or just simply go back to the down home shop put it on the counter they'll call Don yeah exactly okay good enough I'll put you on hold Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. The Good-ish Samaritan. Okay, let's see here. Let's take a break. When we come back, tons of show to speak with you about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to Steve Priest from the NL Classic Car Club. Steve, you're on the air. Morning. Morning to you. Uh, well, yeah, I'm really happy to be on the air. Appreciate it. We're no problem. all excited about the uh, 2022 Stanley Cup champion, Alex Newhook Parade. It'll be Monday from uh, 2 to 4 p.m. I hope you've been talking to your listeners about that one. I've been talking about it all the time. I think there were now hearing me talk about Alex Newhook, but yeah, anyway. That's awesome. Uh, so I'm with the Newfoundland Antique Classic Car Club, and we've been asked to supply four convertibles uh, for this parade, and I'm still looking for a fourth one. So I'm looking for somebody with a, a cool uh, convertible and wants to come out and join the club uh, on the 22nd that can drive, and the uh, commitment's basically for the afternoon, line up around 1.30, and we'll have you done by 4, but we're looking for another convertible still for that parade, so we're all excited about it, and yeah. Man, I'm stoked. I can't wait. He's uh, childhood friend with my children. His father and I are lifelong buddies. I cannot wait to be part of that parade. I mean, I'm just going to be there watching like everybody else. There's a guy driving around, I don't know if he's a member of your club, with an orange 1970 DeVille convertible. It is gorgeous. I don't know. First off, give me an idea what kind of uh, three convertibles you got in play already. So right now, I basically got a uh, 2013 SS convertible, so a black one. So we're, we're looking for any sort of classic car. You know, it doesn't have to be old. Um, I've got, it looks like a 2004 Mustang convertible, and we've got a 1930 Model A Speedster. Uh, it's an open car, so it's not even a convertible. It's completely open. It'll be in the parade, and I'm looking for a fourth. 
it, it, that'll be terrific. And I mean, I think it's cool. Some people who have those types of cars, they're really quite proud of them. So there's no better way to get some eyeballs and some oohs and ahs and wow, that's a cool car than if you're in the Stanley Cup parade coming up on Monday. So if they want to put their convertible in the parade, I know all the issues with permits and all the insurance and liabilities have all been covered by the different organizations that have set it up. Uh, what, are they, what do you want them to do, Steve, if they want to have their convertible in that parade? If you want to drive in the parade, just uh, tell you what, give us an email at our club email. It's info at newfoundlandclassics.com. So info at nlclassics.com. Okay. Uh, send us an email and uh, we'll, we'll get, and give me your contact information. I'll get back to you right away. And uh, yeah, we'll see if we can fit you in. How many members? Yeah, and I'll, I have the info. Pardon me, sir. Okay, yeah, no. Yeah, no, club is carrying insurance for the event. So uh, as part of the National Association of Car Clubs, uh, the Newfoundland Antique Classic Car Club has got insurance for the event. They'll need insurance for their own car. So we'll, we'll go through all that if they're interested. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I just happened to know that all that had already been taken care of because I've been on some email threads about it. So uh, yeah, it, it's terrific stuff. Uh, before we leave, uh, how many members do you have in the NL Classic Car Club? So we've got about 55 family memberships. So uh, if you sign up, that's as a family, that's usually at least two. So there's about 110 members. So 55 memberships, family memberships have signed up. And a lot of us have multiple cars. So there's there's more cars than uh, family members. I can tell you that. No doubt. Uh, walk us through your collection. What do you got? Well, what I have, I've got uh, my partner has a 1930 Model A Speedster. It's a red one, wow. and we we have a 1930 Model A two door. It's a black enclosed car. Um, for the uh, so the middle aged guys or younger guys, I've got a, a 1989 BMW uh, 325i, which it is love. It's an awesome car, and then I've got uh, this 2004 Mustang Cobra convertible sweet a lot of fun too so yeah good stuff so the the email address is info at nlclassics.com is that what you said steve that's correct you betcha okay so absolutely someone's going to want to put their convertible in to be the fourth in that train of classic cars good to have you on the show steve i'll see you in the parade on monday perfect thanks very much all the best Okay, bye-bye. Here we go. Obviously, there's someone out there who would love for all those eyeballs that are going to surround the parade route coming up on Monday, beginning in Bannimer Park at uh, 2 p.m. So, absolutely, they're going to get another convertible in on that one. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's go. Line number four. Say good morning to the mayor of St. Vincent, St. Stevens, and Peters River. That's Verna Hayward. Mayor Hayward, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Uh, morning. Thank you for affording me the opportunity again. Uh, I just want to say that uh, tomorrow morning uh, at 1030, uh, we are having a rally of support for our private Kevin Kennedy Memorial Garden, which is situated next to our Roman Catholic uh, Sacred Heart Church. And I'm not going to beat that story to death, uh, but our biggest concern is uh, preserving our garden. So we're looking for a rally uh, of support tomorrow. Uh, we really don't know what the turnout might be. We don't know what the, the conclusion, if the church sells, if we have to move our garden, if someone buys the church, let us keep our garden. But we're just going to do a show of support. Okay, so this is a community garden that happens to be on church property? This is a, a memorial garden. Oh, a memorial garden. It's, memorial uh, for what? Yes. It's a memorial for Private Kevin, it's in honor of Private Kevin Kennedy, who was killed in Afghanistan at the age of 21 uh, in April of 2007. 
and there, it's also to honor all who served. Uh, there's granite benches that are donated by many families. There's wooden benches. There's shrubs, trees, flowers, and on and on it goes. The garden was uh, the the uh, set up by the late Mrs. Bride Martin, who was the museum curator, and. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's it's a very, very important focal point in our community. And we're very concerned. Uh, I really feel for the Angelas and everybody else in the crisis that we're in. And we just hope that we can somehow save this memorial garden for the people who, in particular, Kevin Kennedy, who sacrificed his life. And Francis Fleming, who also uh, was killed in duty in uh, World War Two. So, you know, I, and uh, like we have bill uh, boards, history boards there with everybody's name who served, and even like in recent generations, those who served. And like so much money has been put towards this, whether it was provincial grants, uh, federal grants, uh, personal donations, and we're up in limbo. For the life of me, you know, I don't know every developer might be looking at any of these properties, obviously not, but I just can't understand the mindset of someone who thinks that they would, you know, get favorable welcome in one community or another by buying up a memorial garden and uh, dismantling it so they can put up a whatever. It just sounds well, so extraordinary. Well, but I look, you know what? You, we don't you know. know, and and neither does the realtor, neither, like, we, well, there's no communication anymore with the archdiocese, it's all in in the lawyer's hands at all based on what the Supreme Court of Canada is deciding to tell them to do to get money. And justifiably, those victims should have been compensated a long time ago. Absolutely. But the concern for us is that this is like a, almost like a sacred spot. Like, you know, I mean, we celebrate in that garden November 11th. We have a, a celebration on July 1st, like July 1st for Canada Day, yes, but we do it for what happened in Beaumont Hamill. So, you know, it's a very, very uh, important, you know, property in our community. But who knows, like, what we may have to do with this. And we don't want to, so we just, you know, no one has any answers because the church is up for sale. Uh, you know, I don't know if there's any prospective buyers. Who knows that either? Uh, but, you know, we just, we're just doing a rally of support, and we would like to see as many as possible. Some of the media are going to be there. We really hope that. I did speak to Richard Dargan, and I really like to have, like, TV media. Uh, like, a lot of people are on holidays, and everything is tight. I know that. But anyway... We're proceeding ahead at 10.30 tomorrow morning, and it's very important that if you care at all about those who served and our veterans, we would like you, for you to be there. I bet you're going to get a good turnout. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Hayward. Let us know how it goes. Sure. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. You know I mean, like, there was a reason why they backed out the cemeteries. Because who was ever going to get away with buying a cemetery and paving it over and building a whatever, a subdivision or a condo or whatever the case may be. Same thing with like that memorial garden. You know, these, I, I guess I mean, the developers are in there to make a buck. Everyone understands that. 
But can you imagine the number of rotten tomatoes and eggs that would people would be in their mind launching at folks who are willing to buy these properties and to develop them? It's just amazing to me. Let's go to line number five. Darren, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Sir, uh, Patty, I want to call in today and let your listeners know about a venue change for Newfoundland Labrador's first Renaissance Festival. Okay. Yep, we were going to hold it in the city of Mount Pearl, but because of the labor dispute that's going on there now, we decided to move it, and we're now going to be out on the uh, Paradise Park at 28 McNamara Drive on August 27th and 28th. And all the full events that were planned for uh, Mount Pearl are still going to head out in Paradise, plus a lot more. We've got f- two full days of events. We're running from 9 o'clock to 6 o'clock. We've got costume characters. The king and the queen are going to be there. The pirates are going to be there. we got a treasure hunt planned. Uh, a lot of stuff is going on. Yeah, so you've got the pirates already in tow based on the Trapassi Pirates Festival, I would imagine. Yes, yeah, I organized that one last year, actually. Cool. So the Renaissance Fair, I think it was going to be on the rugby pitch out of Mount Pearl, but you had to change venues for the obvious reasons. So the King and Queen are going to be there. But describe, like, in my mind's eye, I can picture a Renaissance Fair, but what era are we talking about inside of this particular uh, Renaissance Fair? Well, with the amount of costumes that's in the province and the history of Newfoundland, we're sort of opening up to the Renaissance of Newfoundland, if that's possible with a touch back to old English times. So we're going to be expecting to see king and queens, uh, royal courts, pirates, uh, a lot of mythical creatures, um, a little bit of a, li- a little bit of all the characters. We're hoping to get somebody like from all the Renaissance periods, if that's possible. But a lot of people, what I'm finding is they're not really sure what a Renaissance fe- festival is. So I tell them, go online, Google a, rest- uh, a Renaissance festival, have a look at the time periods and the costumes, and if you like it, then come dressed as that, and we're sure we'll have something for you in it. These are popular. I mean, whether they have uh, reenactments of Civil War issues down in the uh, battles down in the United States and Renaissance fairs, some of these are major, like, amusement park attractions in different parts of the world. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, actually, uh, Renaissance festivals, it's actually like a vendor's market and a show. So we have a grand tent, what we're calling it, a grand artisan tent. We've got a large number of vendors going in there, uh, setting up, selling all kinds of wares. Uh, we also have what we're calling realm lots. There are 20 foot by 20 foot lots that vendors purchase and they set up and they bring their own tents and their own setup for the weekend. And so that's the selling part of it. But besides that, there's actually a storyline to it. So at around early Saturday morning, there's word that the Black Knight is going to show up and attempt to steal the crown jewels from the king and the queen. And then there's going to be a bit, a little bit of a battle sword fight from there. Uh, the king is going to ask for volunteers from the audience, so we're hopefully going to get some kids that want to be knighted and become trained on Saturday and Sunday. And then on Sunday, we heard that Black Knight might show up, and we're going to try to get the, uh, the, the treasure map from Black Knight, and then the kids are going to go on a treasure hunt, bring it back to the king, and everybody will have fun with the spoils from the treasures. Sounds like a bit of fun to me, Darren. Appreciate the time this yep. morning. Thank you, sir. Take good care. Alrighty, bye bye. The Renaissance Fair, milady. Let's take a break. When we come back, what do we talk about? Hydrogen uh, development potentially on the province's west coast. People talking about speeding, sale of uh, church properties, whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Norman, you're on the air. 
Hi, Norman. How you doing? Okay, how you doing? Oh, you know, putting up with it all, listening to the life, you know, talking on your lines, then. Anyway, my topic today is the church, my friend, the church. Okay. Okay. How many Catholic churches do we have in Newfoundland, just on the islands? No idea. Yeah, okay. So if they're all going to be liquidated, and so will I have to pay off the, the badness that the priest done. No, that's not uh, what's happening, and though. Christian brothers. Yeah, that's, Christian brothers. that's not what's happening, uh, though, Norman. No, what's that not happening? What is it? What is it all about there? Because I'm listening to a lot of people that are being pretty upset. They're losing their churches, and the churches are being sold off. And you know, I noticed that the basilica down there myself. Uh, every now, uh, you can't get inside the basilica, so that must be up on the chopping block too, is it? It's been bought. It's going to remain a uh, cathedral, f- uh, just like it has in the past. There was a group between St. Bonaventure's College, St. Bon's Forum, and the basilica. They pooled their money. They bought. It, so it'll continue operating as it is. So talking about uh, churches province-wide isn't really part of this conversation because it's only properties owned by the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation of St. John's. So there's lots of churches in different parts of the province that have nothing to do with this. Oh, okay, because I, I was thinking to myself, I said, Jesus, what are they planning on doing? Selling up all the churches and, like, then, you know, the faith of the people, the people that got faith in God, uh, got nowhere to go off and pray. Like, you know, that would be pretty extreme. But, okay, you you, you, you set me straight around that. Okay. All right. So it's just certain churches are going to be taken care of. Okay. But the, the, the topic of it all is, though, is all to do with money, right? And I'm just wondering, like, does... Does the money really change anything? Like, does it really make that badness that happened go away? No. Like, it doesn't make the badness go away. No. It just gives somebody a lot of money. Well, I don't know how much money they're all going to get either, but it's not about it going away. It's compensation as punitive damage. And whether or not people think it's right or it will help, none of that is really neither here nor there because this has been ruled on by the court. So people may agree or disagree, but now there is a ruling that has to be dealt with. So whether it be between the lawyers representing the victims and the lawyers representing the Episcopal Corporation, we are where we are. Is it going to make my life better, change all the horrific uh, images and memories uh, that I have? and I've endured over decades? No, none of that's going to change. But this has always been the case, is that there's compensation associated with these things. I don't know what it's going to mean to the individual, but it's got to be paid no matter what anyone thinks. Because uh, I, I, I've been listening to your open line there. I listened to that one old lady, uh, that the old uh, person that's up in the age. I listened to her, and she was really heartbroken over it, you know, uh, listening to her. And you could tell in her, tell in her voice that uh, her heart was breaking because of what was going on in that community. And it's, it's pretty wild, though. You know, you're taking away something that somebody, you know, really depended on for that little bit of faith that they got in God. Yeah, and then, you know, people ask me to quiz them about, well, where's your God now, and how did your God allow this to happen? I can just tell you this, and this is the last time I'm going to speak to it. I am not ever going to belittle or disparage an older woman or a lady, a lady or a man who calls in here worried about the sale of their church. I am not going to ask them where your God is. That is not my job. It is not my role. 
you know, their faith and where they find peace and where they find solace is up to them. There are big issues that we can talk about. We can talk about the church at large, but I am not going to put people in that type of position to answer such ridiculous questions because it's not that they can't answer it for the, in the first place. And I'm not going to make them feel bad about the fact that they go to church and pray and find some comfort there. No, I'm not going to do it. They're not being put on the spot in this program about where's your God. It seems patently unfair for me to be played like that. Oh, yeah, I, I, I understand that, Patty. I'm not asking you to No, ask no, no, that. I'm just saying that I got a bunch of emails on it. Oh, but okay, so let's just say, okay, they sells the property yep. for $100,000. Yep. Why can't the community, if they do, really believe, why can't the community just find a little spot and build their own church and keep these other people out of it all together, and it's the community's church? I think it's maybe easier said than done. It depends on the size of the community, how much money people have in these communities. It's going to be extremely difficult to borrow that money. But if you're saying, why not just build your own church? I guess the concept lends itself to why not just buy the church that's existing, like they've done in many places, including the Basilica. And they're putting money together up to the southern shore to buy their church. And they're putting money together in different parts of the province that I know of, and I heard people talking about it, like Holy Rosary down the cove. So they're trying to keep the churches in play with their own money, fundraising and otherwise. So that's happening. Yeah. She said the church was only a hundred thousand dollars. These others say they can come up with a hundred grand. Uh, that's not much money, really. And really, give them the money. Give them a hundred thousand dollars for the church, and they can just tell them to go or don't come back. Yeah, I don't think the lawyers really care who buys the properties necessarily. Uh, the money is the money is the money. But I think coming up with $100,000 is a little bit easier said than done. I would imagine for many people in many parts of the province where, just think about it, the numbers in the congregations have dropped off. So where it once might have been in 1969, that church would, that could hold 200 had 200 in there every Sunday. Now it might have 20. So now you have fewer and fewer people with fewer and fewer dollars to try to come up with a hundred grand seems a little bit easier said than done just from where I sit but there's lots of groups out there they are scrambling to try to raise the money to preserve their church it's happening in many communities yeah because the way I look at it like all these other things that are being funded by by uh, you know private funded people that got money like you know uh, the, the, the wellness center all these places that you see is the day that's helping people with mental illness right like you know uh, it's all being funded one way or the other it's somebody's funding that organization so you know why can't these people in these small communities get some kind of funding thing going they are they're trying they're trying some kind of funding thing so they can get their church they're trying oh I'm just throwing something at them because they're on the, the things, uh, scared to death. They're losing their church. Appreciate the time, Norman. Off to the news. All right, thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. Right. Yeah, whoops. It's it's difficult to raise money at the best of times. And how many people in one community or another, one parish or another, have the wherewithal, the resources, the time, the energy to try to raise whatever amount of money? Like $100,000 is still a significant chunk. Then add into it, you just bought the church, we'll say, and the price was $100,000, and you paid asking price, and now you got a church. But what you also inherit is operating costs every month thereafter. Some churches with a parish hall, it's easy to understand and believe between insurance and other operating uh, overhead. It might be another five grand a month. So 100 is just the beginning.
because then the real game kicks in is to try to keep the doors open and keep it modernized, keep it renovated, keep it warm. Right? All the obvious things. Keep it insured. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, you know the deal. We're speaking with you. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. So there was a truck on fire in the Bowering Park parking lot. Apparently the crews have got the fire under control or have it extinguished, but there's still going to be some snarls in and around the main parking lot of Bowering Park, so... Might be an idea to avoid it. At this time, let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the PC member for Cape St. Francis. That's Jody Wall. Jody, you're on the air. Good morning, Petty. How are you this morning? Very well, thank you. How about you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity to be on this morning. No problem. Petty, I wanted to reach out today with respect to an issue that's going on currently in my district. And, and I've been, I was first made aware of this earlier this year, back in January. And I've been back and forth with residents and constituents on it. And it has to do with the French Immersion Kindergarten Program at Holy Trinity Elementary in Torbay. So currently there's two classes, uh, and it has been for quite some time, number of years. The other really big uh, contributing factors. What was that? I have no idea. That me neither. Let's try again. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, so I have an issue with the uh, Holy Trinity Elementary School, the French Immersion Program in the town of Torbay. And there's been two classes historically for years, and the, the uptake on that French Immersion uh, kindergarten classes is quite strong. So currently... For the coming September, uh, there's going to be one class, and it's going to be capped at 27 students in French Immersion Kindergarten. So right now we have 38 families, 38 uh, young constituents who want French Immersion come this coming September. However, the class size is going to be capped at 27, only one class, unfortunately, and 11 families are currently out in the cold. So I've been, I've been back and forth with many of my constituents on this, those that are affected. Uh, they're quite upset with respect to the decision to have one class, at, and kept at 27 in kindergarten, Patty, is quite a large class size in itself. However, there's still 11 families who, or kindergartens, who want to have this French immersion. Of those 11 students, they have, currently have families, there are families with siblings who went through the French immersion program and are currently still in the French immersion program in school. There's also parents who are bilingual and want to have, in living in my district, and want to have their children educated in the French Immersion Program and are not being given the opportunity. So I first raised this to Minister of, of the Day, Minister Osborne, back in the House on May 30th, and uh, the Minister replied that, you know, it was still under review, and there's been nothing new since. I've reached out to the Department, but I haven't heard back from them with respect to an update, but I'm getting updates regularly from my constituents who are saying that 27 are in, are the ones that are going to be in. The 11 families that are not currently on the wait list are, are out in the cold. They won't be able to go into the French immersion stream. And unfortunately, they now have to go into the English stream and making those class sizes larger again. I proposed at the time back in May the 30th to have two classes of 19 rather than one class of 27. You give all students the opportunity to have a French immersion education and have two class sizes that are more manageable at, at 19 in each class, which is... As far as I know, and, and from what I've heard from, from, teaching, from teachers across the district, 19 in the kindergarten classroom is challenging enough as it is. So that's the issue I'm dealing with right now. I know we do have a new minister uh, in education. Minister Haggy is currently there. But still, there's no, there's, I haven't received any update. And from what I'm hearing from the residents, that the 27 are in are the only ones who are going to have a French immersion education. And I take issue with that. There's a couple of areas dealing with the same thing. Uh, Sacred Heart Academy down in Marystown, same thing. There's a lady who called this program, I believe it was her and her family, three children, 
The oldest two went through the early immersion in kindergarten. They're now in grades, I don't know, four and six or something or other. And now the, the next child to enter doesn't have the same opportunity. And that's unfortunate. And there's apparently just a one-year blip with the weaker student enrollment for early immersion. But then apparently the next year looks a little bit stronger, enough to keep the program in place. So the, the district and the department isn't even entertaining the idea that we have kindergarten and grade one for one year only to share a classroom. The numbers are still very small, totally manageable inside the soft cap of the number of students compared to the number of teachers, for even for one year just to keep it in place. You know, whether it be continuity for all our children having the same opportunity or the community having the same opportunity as their neighbors and all the benefits that are well understood with being multilingual or bilingual. So there's reasons why, even if we're talking small numbers, we can't dismiss it simply because it's five families, 10 families, 25 families. There's an access issues to education. And if I can get it here at Vanier Elementary, I should be able to get it at Sacred Heart Elementary. I should be able to get it at the school in your community. What's the name of the school again? I'm sorry. Holy Trinity Elementary Holy Trinity. in Torbay. Okay. All right. Patty, I couldn't agree more. We have, we have constituents, I have constituents in my district who are looking at moving out of the district because of the lack of French immersion uh, availability for their child. One is a medical professional who is desperately needed here at, at, the, uh, at the hospital, who's in desperate need. Of course, we all know what, that, uh, what the, the health profession is like. And this person is going to look at moving out of the district, possibly out of the province, because of the lack of education possibilities for her child in kindergarten. And that, that just cuts right to the quick. And when we look at what's being said, no, well, I'm not getting any update. Whatever updates the parents are getting, they're just being told that they, they can't get in in September, and they have to look at the English stream, which is, again, it's not, uh, it's not, it's not right. They, do have the, they should have the opportunity for that English, uh, for the French uh, education. Moreover, when they have uh, siblings who have gone through the French immersion program in, at Holy Trinity in Torbay, and they do not have the same opportunity living and one, like I said, with bilingual parents. So it's, it's very upsetting to me, and uh, I'm, I'm asking the minister to, to look at this again, the new minister of education, Minister Haggy, to come up with a solution for these 11 parents, for these 11 students and families, and to have them included in the French immersion education, which they so rightly deserve. Well, and there's plenty of schools don't offer it anyway, period. Uh, Jody, is there any difference? Someone wants me to ask this, and I'm not sure why they want me to ask it, but anyway, is there a difference between the cap size in English versus French stream? Yes, there is, Patty. Is what is question. it? So the English cap size is 25, and the French immersion cap size is 27. So and I, I asked the question, why would, there, why would there be different cap sizes? Um, and I wasn't given a firm answer as to why, but that is what uh, is deemed by the, uh, by, the, by the department. And, of course, the department allocates the teaching units for all the school districts with respect to the uh, number of students uh, as part of their annual budget. But with respect to the difference in cap sizes, I can't answer that one, uh, with respect to 25 versus 27. It's, uh, if you have kindergarten students coming into, in any class, 20, uh, English or French, uh, it's, it's going to be challenging, no doubt. Yeah. It's a brand new, brand new setup. Uh, you know, they're leaving the, uh, the, the comfort and the security of their families coming into a new different classroom. And you have 27 kindergarten students in one class. I can tell you that's more, more than a handful uh, from the teachers that I've spoken to across the province, specifically kindergarten teachers. Uh, it's, it's very trying. It's very challenging. And 27 in a class to that teacher, I'm, I'm sure uh, they would much rather a, a class of, uh, of 19, so, and which would include all families, all 38 families. And there's a lot of one-on-one -on -one, uh, attention and direction required at that age. And then, of course, when you add in the fact that inside the inclusive classroom, there may be children with different types of special needs, whether it be student assistance or otherwise. So it becomes, it becomes a, a fairly difficult age group. 
to manage inside those numbers. I appreciate the time, Jody. Thanks for the call. Eddie, I appreciate your time as well, and I do call on Minister, Minister Hagee to uh, come forward with a solution for this, and uh, I'm ready and available to chat any time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Paddy. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Let's show you all the PC member for Cape St. Francis. Okay, let's see here. Let's take a break. When we come back, tons of show to speak with you about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's keep rolling. Line number three, Gerald, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you today? Grand. How about you? Oh, not bad, thanks. Uh, Paddy, I'm calling uh, concerning... Uh, I'm a resident of uh, St. John's. I live on Anthony Avenue. Uh, I noticed... Well, it's been a long time. I've been living there 43 years. Uh, people speeding, going to the brink, twin rinks, uh, going to and coming from us. I'm just wondering, like, what can we do to fix something like that? Because there's a lot of kids, families up there, and people are late for hockey and stuff like that, and they're speeding, and they can get out of that boat entrances. There's one off of Money Pond Road, and there's one off of Blacker Avenue. And uh, it's it's insane how fast people go. You wouldn't know they were racing. Yeah, I mean, it's just about everywhere. Anthony yeah. Avenue would be a primary route, uh, you know, because you got the Black Marsh Depot not too far away. You got the rink itself. There's a big yeah. development right behind the rink. So I don't know if some of the traditional traffic calming measures like the speed bump, which are pretty effective, and they seem to be popping up in more and more spots around the city in particular. But yeah. I, I just for the life of me can't understand. Like, I mean, just consider what Anthony Avenue looks like. The length of Anthony Avenue, the pretty blind turn coming out of the parking lot of Twin Rinks, even just yeah. the blind turn. If I'm going up Anthony and I want to turn right to get back out to Monday Pound Road, some of these really tight, congested spots where you got you can have a car coming out of Twin Rinks, a car coming out of that road going to Monday Pound Road at the exact same time while someone's racing up to the top of that cul-de-sac. It's just ridiculous. And, and like you said, Paddy, you're, you're right on saying that because um, – People like I'm after, I live there on Anthony Avenue, and there's people that come around on Blackwater Avenue on Anthony Avenue, and they're going that fast that around the opposite side of the road to make the turn to get up to the rink. And like it's just more than anything, it's the kids. Like if the people or parents even thought about like you know that treat the road like as if their kids lived on it. Yep. Right. And uh, probably you know just think about that because like there's been a few close calls because I know like I got friends that. I got kids as well on that road, and and we're just trying to get like speed bumps. I think would be great. We'll do something. Anything helps. Uh, even just talking like this, you know, the one thing I just try to consider, and I think many people probably think the same way, is. You're, you're in a hurry, hurry to get nowhere, right? I mean, even if you're late for hockey practice, what? how much more late would you be and how much anxiety and angst would you carry for the rest of your life if you had an accident there because you were just beaten? And God forbid you hurt somebody. So I, driving around this town is really frustrating at the very best of times. But you add in, like, uh, uh, just a personal story. And this is yesterday. I'm at the lights on McDonald Drive and Torbay Road. There was a guy at, to my left who was going up Torbay Road in a black Elantra. Not a Ferrari, a black Elantra. The, he was in the right-hand lane. The person in the left-hand lane was obviously not paying attention when the light went green. So the car in front of him went. He was second in line. He changed lanes in the middle of the intersection and roasted it all the way to Pearson Street, which is a few hundred feet down the road, to stop at a red light. Then between there and Wedgwood Park, he changed lanes, I'm going to say 10 times, getting nowhere in a hurry. What happened? He stopped at the next light there by the, the Sobeys further up the road. Like, where are you going? Right. What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, uh, last word to you, Gerald. Go ahead. Uh, 
it's just Paddy uh, we, uh, and like a friend of mine that has a kid on Anthony Abbey as well. I think he tried to, he was contacted uh, our MP or whatever for, uh, was Jamie Korab and he said that, uh, like, good luck on getting him on Anthony Kid and Speed Bumps on Anthony Avenue. So we don't know if, if like, you know, it would probably be worth a while to try and just stick to it, but, you know, see where it takes us. Because, like you said, it's going to be too late when something does happen to a kid or something. Yeah, for sure. Gerald, appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for the call. Take care, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, another little break. I think we got an update coming from Don. We'll see if that's a bit of good news. And then we're going to talk about hydrogen on the West Coast. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And welcome back. Update time it is. Line number one. Don, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, truly, we're a good Samaritan. There was a mother and son that found it, and uh, we just picked the bag up from their house. So Tur- we got a call about five minutes after we got off the phone with you, and uh, yeah, it's all good. Good deal. I'm glad it worked out. And you know what? It kind of usually does because people who have the right intentions, they want to follow through. They might not think of what's the best thing to do. What should I, how should I approach this? And so they kind of sit down and hoping that it just falls in someone's lap and, you know, they get it done right. So I'm glad it worked out for you, Don. And I suppose everyone, everything's still in the bag. Everything's still in the bag. Everything's great. (laughs) Terrific. I'm glad it worked out. I wanted to say thank you for your part in it. Happy to do it. All right. You have a good day. You too, Don. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's go. Let's roll. Line number two, talking some hydrogen with the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and uh, thanks for having me on. Patty, um, I um, was listening to my uh, my colleague, uh, Eddie Joyce, uh, last night on NTV News, uh, raising concerns uh, about this project on the West Coast. So, uh, and I know you and I had uh, spoken about it a couple of weeks ago. We, we we did have a chat about it. So I just wanted to keep this going because, uh, you know, I know you were in the summer mode and people are not necessarily paying attention and so on. But, uh, you know, uh, one thing that I learned the hard way, uh, I will say, uh, when it comes to the Muskrat Falls Project and so on, is the importance of uh, getting all the answers, asking all the questions, challenging uh, what you're being uh, told and uh, just simply not taking anybody's uh, word for things, getting the facts out there. And uh, so far, there has not been uh, a lot of facts to my mind, certainly not enough facts out there, and it's something that uh, uh, we need to talk about. Uh, And I do want to say as well, Patty, uh, you know, just to sort of preface my remarks, uh, that I am absolutely 100 percent in favor of exploring uh, any and all options for green energy projects for our province. We know that uh, the world, uh, you know, while it's going to take time, uh, the world will eventually transition off oil, and uh, that's not going to be something, a resource that we're going to be able to uh, uh, continue uh, to develop forever, and we need to find alternatives to get revenue uh, into our province and to put people to work. Yeah, what what kind of revenue comes with this? in favor of it in principle. What kind of revenue is even associated with this? Because I've heard mention of royalty. Royalty on what? The wind? Yeah. Uh, royalty on what? The water? Okay. I mean, if there's a way where we can generate revenue while they generate hydrogen, fair enough. But for me, it's just jobs and maybe not much more. Now, jobs are important. and Let's keep the jobs coming. But I'm not even sure what this all involves. Now, the government 
to their credit, looked like they were on the right track when going back to World Energy GH2 and saying more details, environmental assessments, and all the things that were inside of that, that story from the government. That was the right thing to do. Now, with this deal to be signed between Canada and Germany on the 23rd of August, with no such green hydrogen project up and running in the country, it gives people the feeling that we're just waiting for a rubber stamp on something, which is not good enough. We don't even have enough. I don't even know if we've thought of all the questions, let alone got all the answers. No, I, listen, I agree with you, Patty, 100%. And these are some of the things that uh, Eddie was raising last night and, and we talked about. And you're 100% right. There are so many questions that have to be answered relate to this. And you're right. I don't know uh, what this will mean in terms of royalties, if that's even a thing. Certainly... Certainly, uh, I would hope that they're going to have, uh, you know, any businesses and, and revenue that they're making off of Newfoundland and Labrador are going to have to pay taxes on that. Hopefully, we're going to put people to work, and those people are going to pay taxes and so on, which is going to help government coffers and is going to help the uh, the economy and so on. So, you know, I, I, again, I'm, I'm open-minded about it, but I have so many concerns. Uh, as you say, like right off the bat, we're having this announcement between the, the feds and Germany, uh, on a project that's not even approved, uh, we have a project that apparently, uh, you know, it's 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 being broken down into three phases uh, in terms of the environmental assessment, which raises a big red flag for me, because one of the things I'm hearing from people, and I don't know if it's correct or not, but I mean, I'm hearing from people that really phase one from an environmental point of view uh, may not be as big of a deal, but once if we approve phase one and there's millions or billions of dollars spent on phase one, and then we get to phase two and three, which I understand may be in more environmentally sensitive areas, will we then be in a situation where they says, well, uh, you know, the heck with the environment. We've invested all this money. we got to proceed. Uh, environment be damned. So that's a concern I'm, I'm, I'm hearing from people, and I share that, and I think that uh, we need to look at what are the environmental impacts uh, not just in phase one, but all three phases. The other piece, of course, is the fact that this is all crown land. And it was only a couple of weeks ago that Minister Parsons said that they would be entertaining, uh, I, I believe, not necessarily proposal, but interests in areas of the province where crown land could play a role. Then the department would decide on exactly what crown land would go up for uh, bids or proposals. Then they would seek proposals of which they would choose the best proposal. So how can you have this? Uh, how can we be moving ahead with a project when we don't even know if that crown land is going to be available? And even if it was made available, how do we know that another company is not going to come in with a better proposal? Yeah. Than, 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 you know, so it feels like the fix is in and that this is a dumb deal and a, and a rubber stamp. That's how it feels. And, uh, but, and, and so we had to be concerned about these things. But we don't even know. <laughs> Again, you know, we, I like the information. I thrive on it. We don't even know exactly what this deal sounds like, looks like, implications, because it might not even necessarily be all focused in our world energy GH2 in port of port It might not have any mention of it particularly at all. It might be a national commitment for the provision of green hydrogen by 2024 from wherever it comes from, whether it be uh, Sable Island or in Stephenville. So until we even know what the deal looks like, we're I guess it's easy enough to focus focusing on uh, Stephenville because the meeting is in Stephenville. But there's right. no hydrogen in Stephenville. So is it a national commitment, which is, I think, just muddies the waters once again. And I've heard from the department says, 
Well, you know, this doesn't have to necessarily be about World Energy GH2. Okay, it might not. But it does make it seem and feel like it is an awful lot about that particular proposal, given the fact they chose Stephenville to sign the contract. So I'm not going to presuppose anything here, but I tried to ask Minister Parsons every question I could think of. I'm going to ask everyone who's got any position of authority, including John Risley, who we are trying to get on the show, to ask questions of, because we need to know. Now, there's a difference between Muskrat and these projects, given my my money. You know, how much of my money is going to be in? I asked Minister Parsons, he says it's not the government's intention, but that doesn't say no. Then you look at the federal government, and inside their own playbook, they have made hydrogen and alternate forms of energy to be strategic in their investments and focus. So there's money coming from somewhere. And who's paying it? Because I don't care if it's provincial or federal money. It's my money. So I'd like to know some more specifics before we can even entertain whether or not it's a good or a bad thing. But anyway, I'll give you the last word because I'm late for the news. No, uh, absolutely, Patty, and uh, I agree with you. And, of course, you know, uh, there's, there's so many... There's so many questions and concerns uh, and, and answers we require because, you know, just one other aspect of this. I mean, let's say they go ahead with the project. And as you say, we haven't determined at this point in time, is there anything that we would have royalties on? What would it mean in terms of government revenues? What does it mean in terms of jobs? Because if we're going to take 160 windmills in the case of this particular project, and we're going to put them, you know, right through the West Coast of Newfoundland Labrador and, you know, whatever impacts that may or may not have on the environment or or just the, you know, or, or on people living in the area or just on the unsightliness of it or whatever the case might be. And at the end of the day, all that all it means to allow that to happen is that, yeah, we have some construction jobs for a couple of years. Uh, after that, there's zero royalties or very little or zero royalties and maybe a handful of jobs. Do we really want to put 160 monstrosities uh, on the west coast of the province unless there's going to be some something in it significant for the people of Newfoundland and Labrador in terms of benefits, jobs, money? If it's sure. not there, then why would we want to do it? So we need to know this stuff before we give anything a green light. That would be my point. Appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. Thanks, Paul. You too. Bye-bye. You know, and then... Uh, like everything else in this world who you are where you are will have an impact on what you think of the potential for wind hydrogen or anything else if you are living in that part of the province then you would have much higher concern with the what people refer to as the eyesore of 164 wind turbines when in fact there's talk of even tripling that to maximize the scope of the project so that would be easy enough to understand why people would think about it in that arena same thing with the environmental impact just like muskrat if we're going to use muskrat which i don't think is really much of a direct analogy muskrat falls if you were living in and around on and around the grand river the churchill river you would have a much more heightened sense of the environmental impact versus so many people say for instance living where i live who possibly their number one concern was how much is my bill going to be so that's why a real firm well-rounded understanding of what we're talking about can help us all have a bit of a better informed opinion because right now we're just sort of shooting or yelling into the void. Nobody really knows exactly what we're even talking about. So I'd love to get Risley on. Love to see what kind of deal is going to be signed on August 23rd. If it's specifically 
about world energy, GH2, then we've got ourselves a problem. If it's about a national commitment coming from sources who knows where, who knows in what parts of the country, another conversation. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Okay, let's go. Line number three, Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Thank, thank you to you and David and VOCM for letting me get on and voice my concern on things. Uh, Patty, I'm going to a couple of things, and I'm going to make it quick because I know your show is busy. Uh, I wanted to talk about what's happening uh, with the sale of the RC churches, the Roman Catholic churches. Uh, I, I got a, I'm not Roman Catholic. I got a, re- a lot of respect for that religion. I spend a lot of time in the Roman Catholic churches uh, across the province, and uh, I got a lot of friends, Roman Catholic. And I tell you, uh, it's devastating what's happened to sale of these churches. These parishioners should never be going through what they're going through today. This shouldn't have never come to this. I mean, yes, these victims should get what's 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 what they should receive for what they've been through, and I agree with it one hundred percent. But it should never be the sale of their churches. I mean, it's not it's not the church's fault. It's not the parishioners' fault. It's because of you know whose fault, and this should be dealt with once and for all, and it should never be happened again. Rome got billions and billions of dollars, like I've heard you say this morning. And you know they're very rich, rich in, in real estate or whatever in New York or wherever. They should be taking care of this. They've come to Canada, the, the Pope have an apologized for the things they have done wrong. Well, this is a wrong thing that have happened in the Roman Catholic Church, and it should be taken care of from Rome, not air locally and lose their churches. It's just absolutely insane. That's my opinion on that. And I tell you, it's a topic of interest, Patty. Wherever I go, even the weekend. When I'm, uh, you know, out on I'm Nolan out in the, in the Pacific, uh, in the Pacific, in the in Presentia Bay. I mean, it's a topic of interest no matter what. So they're very concerned, and I and I got a lot of respect for that religion, and I wish wish that this can be settled. But Patty, uh, uh, the other thing I want to talk about is cell service. Okay, very important, and I've heard that on your line show this morning. Uh, cell service is terrible, and it should be corrected, the problems that we have. And, and uh, like I had 33 years with Bell Alliant, and I know is what they're saying. That, you know, they, they, it, needs, it needs to happen. Uh, like, for example, I live uh, in Deep Bay, Fogo Island. Uh, cell service is terrible there. I got a booster, and uh, my car still get cut off, like the gentleman said this morning. That's happened out in Pity Arbor, wherever. Uh, it, it, it's terrible. Uh, and, uh, like, on the Gander Bay Road, like you got 20 minutes drive from Gander to Gander Bay with no cell service. You could be an ambulance there, could be working on something in the back of the the, the road ambulance and have the call for help. Uh, so it's, uh, it's 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 terrible. And it, what happens there is this is controlled. This communication is controlled, is government controlled. So the government is responsible to make sure that Bell Alliant, an op- uh, you know, a, a company with, with again with, with billions of dollars, that can put more sales sites, whatever it takes to get that communication better than it is. But the government is the one that got to put their foot down and say, Bell Alliant or whoever it is, whether it's Rogers or whoever, you got to have better communications or else they got. Or to else put what, their foot though? Down. What can the government actually do? Well, well, we know it's the problem. So, so, so the problem got to be taken care of. And you know what? It would be taken care of. If the government was doing their own work, it would be taken care of. I know. I know through inside information. It would be taken what care is, of. What does that why mean, though? Why would they spend billions of dollars if they're not forced to do so? You know, how do, but how do, the question is, how do you force a private sector company to build a transmission tower? That's my it, question. It's, it's government controlled. It's not provincially yeah, government controlled. Well, it, it's, well go, government controlled is government controlled, whether it's federal or provincial. 
it's still the government is the one that's controlling that for you and I. So if they don't say, Bella Line, you've got to put in another tower or you've got to have better communications than what you got today, then it won't happen. But if we, like like these gentlemen that's calling in this morning or me, it won't just happen then. But the government's got to take the bull by the arms and say, listen, this communication got to be better. It's 2022. We deserve better communication. If you're going to provide the service, you've got to do it. And they will do it. They will do it, just that the government is not pushing the card on it. But the regulator, and look, I, I wish it was better, period, right across the board, but the regulator and the sales is only about access to the bandwidth. They can buy it. They don't have to utilize it. See, that's the trick here with forcing someone to do something is because they don't, through the sale and access to all of the, the bandwidth, doesn't mean I actually have to use it. That's part of the problem here, Eugene, is that we've got smaller entities that can't get in on the action because the big three own just about all of the connectivity. It doesn't mean that they actually have to follow through and pepper the landscape with transmission towers. It's just that they can if they want because they bought it. So that's where forcing them becomes a very tricky piece of business, whether it be legally and or through the regulator. That's just what I'm saying. Not that I wished, uh, not that I don't wish that the communications were better because I obviously do because I talk about it all the time. I, I got a prime example, and I'm going to make it quick. On Fogo Island, we got a cell tower in t- on the air by Telting. We got one in Fogo by the exchange down in the valley. Back some time ago, there was going to be one put on the hill. Yeah. But there was, it, they were never forced to do so. The communication, the, the province didn't force it. So they just do what they did was cheaper at the time. And, and, and they're still doing today. And so the people are there suffering with boosters and everything else trying to get cell service. And, and it's not good enough. But what I'm saying is the bottom line is the government got to control this, and they are, and they should, right? And if they don't control it to the point where the communications is better and put the pressure on, and I know, like, if there's anyone listening to Bell Lyon now, they know it's, it's right what I'm saying. I mean, they, they, the government got to say, got to make an issue out of it, not not just the local public like you and I and, and a man in Petty Arbor. It, it got to be a government. The government got to make an issue. Communication got to be better. Whoever puts the service in, right, you know, with, with, God knows who it's going to be, but whether it's Bell Lyon or whoever, the service got to be better, and this is what got to happen, and make an issue out of it and if it's not we're just preaching to the you know to the dead <laughs> if it won't happen I appreciate the time Eugene you had the last word this morning okay Patty have a good day you too all the best bye 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 look I've, everybody agrees that we need better service I mean, whether you're in Labrador having to cross the Trans-Labrador Highway and needing to borrow a sat phone, even which people don't always return the sat phone, which is another issue, you can drive in and out of Petty Harbor in the last couple of weeks. You can drive up and down the Buren Peninsula and plenty of pockets, even on the Northeast Avalon, where it's spotty at best. Anyway, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.